this is Sarah Marenko, and this is for the Cream Lake Bar Club, and we are today talking for our podcast about how one goes about uh, buying and purchasing Cream Lake Bars, which is a question that we get a lot on the various Cream Lake Bar Facebook pages. So those of you joining us today, I just want to let you know we have several individuals here who are here to answer questions around that. Um, I will be asking some general questions as well that they can talk about. And you can certainly chime in and ask any questions that you have. Um, if you have a question that you also want to pose via chat, um, someone, share uh, a link, can go ahead and read that out at um, any point as well. So at this point, we welcome you to our podcast today. And our first question um, and prompt and something to think about is, what are some general questions that um, people might want to ask breeders when they're looking for stock? It's obviously getting to be spring now, and a lot of people are out shopping. So what are some things that individuals on this call would recommend that a good person would um, talk about with the breeder, what somebody would talk about with the breeder? This is Jane. I'll just jump in there and say um, I, I would want to ask if their stock is healthy. When's the last time they've had a problem? What kind of problems they might have had? And, uh, and that's sort of informed by um, I'm in a quarantine area in California, and we actually cannot ship in or out right now or even move birds around. So I think it's important to know uh, that you're getting healthy stock. Agreed, Jane, and I do think that it's unfortunate how often I see on Facebook that um, someone has a bird shipped to them or chicks shipped to them, and um, they don't appear healthy. They die within you know several days of people receiving them, and so I think it is important to ask that question to avoid some ultimate disappointment. Um, Any other thoughts there? Yeah. This is Cheryl, and I can tell you questions I kind of get asked. Um, you know, people do ask me about the temperament of, of my birds. Some cream leg bars are a little flaky and flighty, and, of course, roosters can be real jerks. So um, I know for me personally, I want good dispositions. Um, I like calm, steady birds. I'm getting into leghorns, and compared to my leg bars, oh, my gosh, night and day. So I do get those kind of questions about temperaments. Um, uh, you also, you know, how well um, do these birds um, go into other flocks, so to speak? Um, I had a uh, line of dot that was just mean to everybody. And so she actually stroked out in the Texas heat chasing another bird. So I laughed and, threw, you know, got rid of her. But I like the fact that leg bars, as a general rule, are not bossy and dominant, but they hold their own to the point where they're not weak and get picked on. They're really nice flock birds. Those are some great points, Sherilyn. And we do get that also on the Facebook page a lot is how do you deal with um, cockerels or, or cock birds that are, are aggressive? And I think that most of us are pretty lucky that cream leg bars are not, don't tend to be that way, even though they can offer protection within the flock, but they don't tend to be as human aggressive 
as some of the other breeds, but it is also a personality trait that we knew that if you um, don't pay attention to it, you can actually uh, breed it into your your birds if you don't keep close about the ones that you already have in your breeding. So it is important that uh, you ask breeders about whether or not they have had aggressive uh, males or females in their flock. Yeah, this is this is Jane. Just to add to that, um, I have breeding stock that's separated, but I also have cream leg bars mixed in with um, the general population, like fairly large groups, and and they do they do quite well. Um, I have one group that's got three large males that are Marons um, uh, mixes and three. Uh, cream leg bar roosters with, you know, this, so that's six roosters with a bunch of hens, and everybody does fine. They have a pecking order, but nobody's beat up. Um, they look really nice, and the hens are, you know, well watched when they're out foraging. So I, I do think they merge well with other breeds, um, and and the hens in that flock, some are cream leg bars that I'm not using for breeding. And then there's a lot of other varieties in that in that flock. So I do think they merge well. Yeah, this is Alyssa. I was to add on to that, I have had a number of roosters that were not cream leg bars and also cream leg bar roosters. And I have had some jerks of roosters. None of them have been cream leg bars. So I've actually been impressed with the disposition so far of the cream leg bar. I did have one male that developed um some aggressive problems and it turned out it was during a period of time when I was having predator problems in the flock and he had been attacked. I originally had thought he was attacked by another rooster, but in retrospect, I had an, a great horned owl that was coming in and trying to nab some of the birds that were roosting in a specific tree. And this little guy, the wound he got, I believe, was actually from a great horned owl. And I think that that changed his personality because he almost got eaten. And he, I ended up removing him and, and uh, getting rid of him. But um, I think that occasionally you'll have a, a problem, but that was not an inherent disposition on his part. It was because of uh, an incident that happened with him that changed him to be um, more mm -hmm. aggressive. So there's explanations for these things. Um, the other thing I wanted to do is to circle back um, to what Jane had said before about, you know, the health of the flock and, and what she would look for. And I would ask personally some follow-up questions. I actually would like to know whether or not the breeder uses um, antibiotics in their flock. There's there's not a lot of antibiotics that are approved in chickens to start with, and there's scarce ones that are approved in laying hens. And there are some people out there that, and I see on the message boards that, oh, yeah, just use Batril and use yeah. you know all these other products. And I would kind of want to know if they're using a lot of antibiotics in their flock, for me, that would tell me that they have some underlying problems that they're kind of um, they're they're substituting um, antibiotics for good husbandry, and that would set off something in my mind saying why would they need to use this many antibiotics in a flock situation? And so that would be a question actually that I would ask. There's nothing wrong with treating an individual case if you have a valuable bird where you need to, um, you know treat a, a known disease, but if you're using it quite a bit in your flock, that would send something up in my mind thinking, hmm, let's let's think about this a little bit and see 
if there's something underlying. I would also ask what forms of biosecurity they have in place at their uh, premises. Do they, is it an open flock? Do they come and go? Do they quarantine animals? If they take them to shows, do they quarantine them before they put them back in the general population? That sort of thing. So that might give me an indication about how um, concerned the people are with the health of their flock. And um, that would flow through to, you know, whether or not I would want to get uh, hatching eggs or birds from them. Yeah, this is Carolyn. Anybody that is kind of dependent on preventative measures of medications, I would be very concerned about the overall health of a flock. I mean, I want healthy birds. And honestly, I mean, if it's not something where a simple worming will take care of it, I don't want the birds in my flock. I want healthy, resistant birds. And so I tend to look at, you know, anything that tends to get sick is not what I want anywhere around the property, and I usually dispose of it. So, um, you know, anybody dependent on antibiotics would be a concern. And you really need to make sure that if you're getting eggs or birds from somebody, that these people are NPIP. Holding the number isn't enough. Paperwork needs to happen. Their state needs to be notified. Whatever it is is leaving, and the state receiving needs to know it's coming in. I had a problem with a, another breed, a breeder in Oklahoma, that just gave me their number. And we were having problems. They weren't keeping up with paperwork. And then come to find out, you know, they were kind of on the edge with their certification. So, you know, if you have a NPIP flock, make sure you know that they are definitely current. And then make sure that that seller provides the proper paperwork with their animals. Yeah, that's a great point, Sherilyn, and it's important also to know for anyone that's buying that you can always verify on the MPI website um, by, the, their, by their map who has um, MPIP and what their status is, if they have been just tested for the minimum um, PT test or if they also have AI. People might also be uh, tested for MG or MS and microplasmas. Um, all that information is listed on there, and it gives people's information. Because unfortunately, the other problem, going back to what Sherilyn mentioned, is we are aware that sometimes people list other people's MPIP numbers. Uh, that actually happened with my own flock recently. Somebody was using my number. But they can't oh, wow. actually go in, yeah, they can't go in the database and do anything. And somebody thankfully alerted me on another site. But you can verify that all yourself as a, as a buyer. You can go in there and see when people have been tested, what they've been tested for, and make sure that information is all accurate and up to date. Correct. Good. Um, anybody on the call, uh, general membership, that had other questions in that area about what you might ask, a general question you might ask a breeder about their stock? How about egg color? Egg yeah, color, we get that a lot. <laughs> so, uh, Paul, you have experience with that. I'm sure people have asked you about that. Uh, what might you say to individuals if they were asking you as a breeder about egg color? If they ask me, oh, yeah. But what I've found over 20 years of experience raising Americanas and four years previous to that raising Easter eggers, that generally they'll start out 
laying pretty well blue. And as they lay, and I'm finding the same thing with the leg bars, as they lay, they get lighter in color to the point that they turn white. So uh, I tell people that contact me that specify they want blue eggs, that right up front, that most of those that want blue eggs are really never very satisfied with the birds, especially after they lay for a period of time. But uh, the egg color varies greatly in them, and I'm finding that also in these leg bars. Uh, most of all ours that we've started with pretty well started with blue eggs. There's been a couple of them that started with green eggs. And I do realize that where all that's coming from, if we look back in the genetic history of the leg bars with the uh, brown uh, leg, brown egg-laying uh, barred Plymouth Rock, uh, that's where all that green is coming from, from. Not that they ever changed it, because I've read, done a lot of research on the breed that... Uh, I know at the beginning they just specified blue eggs and said that later it was accepted for them to be green. Well, I'm going to say from 20 years of, well, 24 years of, actually 25 years of experience that they were laying some of both to start with. So, anyway, okay, I'm, I'm trying to get some good blue egg layers to start with uh, to build our flock around, but uh, I, I know what's laying ahead, so I'm sure that's a question that comes up a bunch. And uh, as I purchase, I'm Use the same one. I mean, the same question. What, what are they laying? Um, Paul, that's a good point, Paul. And definitely one that's on the Facebook groups a lot is that people ask about the um, the egg color. And I think it also gets into the point that if you're buying, um, you should also identify whether some of your short and long-term goals. So if your goals are to have Hey, Sarah, we're losing you. Yeah. I'm catching about every word. <laughs> hey, hey, Sarah, you, you might be in a bad spot. We've missed some of that. But I think it's probably the gist of it is if you're buying, you should be talking to your seller as to whether all your interest is, is in pretty blue egg colors or are you interested in breeding to the standard um, and discuss egg colors. I mean, I started yeah. with blue, I only bred blue, but I mean, that green pops up. And it's like, even though I breed for blue, I have nice birds that have a little bit of a green tint. So now I'm marking those birds for me to personally work with to see, do I want to still mess with them another year or do I just want to kind of get rid of it? But, you know, the general population tends to just want a pretty blue egg with so make sure your goals are clear. Is it egg color or quality birds that you're going to breed to a standard? Good. Thank you, Alyssa. Yeah, this is Alyssa. I wanted to um, go back to something Paul had said because he said when we first had the standard up, it said just blue, and then we added in green. And what, what happened was when we imported the standard from England along with the birds, their standard actually allows for blue, green, and olive. And oh. so they actually have all three allowed, including olive. And um, after looking at the birds, we originally put in blue because people wanted blue. And there was a lot of discussions about how in some languages you don't even have a distinction between the color blue and the color green. And everybody has a very hard time actually distinguishing between blue and green. And there's a lot of environmental factors, including how close you are to the sun. Because um, at an altitude, I'm at 5,000 feet. It's different than when you're at sea level. That perception 
perception of blue is different. And so um, we added the green back in there because it was more encompassing, uh, blue and green. But we left the olive color out because olive here means something different than it means in England. And when we think of olive, we think of something that has a lot of brown tacky, um, you know, deep olive, like a Kalamata olive coloration, yeah. and their olive color is is more of a, you know, the olive that you get in the can, maybe with pimentos, it's a, it's a much brighter, lighter colored green, and so we, we left the olive out because we don't want to encourage that deep khaki color, we want to still stay with the more pastel blue slash green color, and that's, that's that was to the point why that happened, Paul, just so that there's an understanding for that. Okay, but the thing I was referring to was when they were first created in Great Britain, they say, uh, just said blue only. And then uh, I've read on the, the Facebook pages that later they, they included green, and they were well, wondering they, where on the way they accepted that. And what I was trying to lay was the foundation that it would have been that way from the very beginning. With it, using it, it was, part. yeah, it, it, it was that way from the very beginning because the original birds that they got from South America had a spectrum of egg, egg colors. But they, when when Punnett labeled the the color, he said it was the quote unquote blue egg gene, and so they called them blue. But when you you know genetically you look at silver, for instance, it it's it's not like silver like you would look at a, a picture that is silver. It's actually a whitish color. And so, you know, what, what a geneticist might call something may translate into a, a different verbal description if you look at the color and the verbal description of that blue egg, quote unquote blue egg gene is actually blue or green. Okay. This is Jane. Um, it's kind of uh, some other elements people might look for are um, a little, uh, I don't know, fine-tuned, but you might ask your breeder or look at pictures uh, to see if the birds have nice white, nice white earlobes and yellow legs. Um, I find those are really important. I agree with that. And in fact, you might want to broaden that. I would ask a breeder if they breed to the standard of perfection, um, because some breeders don't. They don't know what the standard of perfection says, and they may not be consciously or conscientiously trying to breed towards the standard of perfection. So um, that would be a question that I personally would ask. I actually asked Greenfire Farm at one point if they were breeding to the standard of perfection, and their email response back to me was, we are not the arbiters of the standard. And so I thought that was kind of a curious uh, response from them that basically tells me that they aren't breeding towards the standard, or with that in mind anyway. Yeah. And something some probably don't can think about, I mean, with the standard, I mean, I don't know, my, I'm yeah, down here in Texas. I'm down here in Texas, and my combs on my birds are huge. So I am actively trying to get, in addition to correct shape um, and standing up with the crest on the males, I am actually looking to try to get smaller crests, I mean, smaller combs on these birds. You put my birds up north where there's some crazy winter weather, and, you know, I would be really concerned with them losing some combs. 
So, you know, if you're up north, you kind of probably want to take a look at the comb size on the birds and see if it's actually going to be a good fit. I think that actually gets into another point with asking questions of sellers is that in addition to finding out what the sellers uh, are seeing in their flock, I think it is important also to ask questions of the seller about what they know about the breed itself and try and flesh out what are their goals and as well as what their original sources were from their own stock. Uh, so it's, it's fine to ask a breeder, where did your stock come from? What lines do you have? Um, because we do know that certain lines will produce different types of birds. And so asking those types of questions. Other thoughts that you might ask the seller about their background or information about their flock? Um, the different lines, you know, there's the ABC and then the Reese lines. So, again, most people want just the blue eggs, but if you're a serious breeder, there's pros and cons of all the different lines. So, if it's important to you to have something in particular, you probably want to know, you know, where they got their birds from, how long have they been breeding them, um, and, you know, and what traits you see, what traits, you know, they want to work out, and, you know, where those birds probably came from. Good point. This is Jane. Um, I've been breeding them for eight, almost eight years now, and at some point we're going to be developing our own lines, essentially. So where you start is, I think, maybe – interesting but at some point for example you know Paul Smith whatever he's breeding is going to be have its own it's he's breeding to the SOP but it's going to be you can recognize his birds probably from Curtis Hale you know so yeah. th there's there's just little things that you start to see at some point that um the lines will the the lines that originated will probably become blurred. I think that's a very important point, Jane, and that certainly does happen with other breeds. And I know that you have mentioned about your breeding, and Curtis, I know, has talked about his own flock, which has been closed. And so he essentially, you know, has his own line at this point, too, that people do refer back to and talk about. Mm-hmm. I, I agree wholeheartedly with what Jane said, with the exception that uh, rather than eight years down the road, you start your own line. They start immediately when you start picking, choosing which male and which female you're going to put together. That's when they claim that you're starting yours. That's the beginning. But it takes a couple of years to fix kind of a type, does it not, to where you now kind of have your unique thing rather than the blend of Joe and... Sarah and whatever, right? Oh yes, I definitely agree with that. But but they're they're starting your line whenever you start choosing and selecting the, the males and females that you're putting Correct. together. Correct. Anyway, just a thought. Yeah, and this I is, think with go ahead. Uh, this is Jane. Um, so uh, occasionally when I'd attend a show and Walt Leonard was there, which was usually the reason I was at the show. 
um, he would, I would say, oh, I feel like I'm this far away from accomplishing something. And he'd just say, I think you're five generations away or, you know, whatever I thought it was, he always said he thought it was <laughs> further, further out. So, um, I think those, those seasons that we're working on stuff is, is probably never ending. But at some point we can reliably maybe tell people, I have these characteristics very reliably. Um, for example, the comb size is an issue um, that everybody's, I think, working to to rein those into a little smaller size or the white earlobes on the males. You know, some of those things are hard to accomplish. And if you are seeing it consistently in your flock, that's a great thing to be able to tell somebody or, frankly, I, I would say competitive breeders probably don't sell those birds. Right. Right. Yes. Um, now, Sarah R. did bring up in the chat, I'm not sure if she has access to speaking, the chick down. This is an auto-sexing breed, and we all have seen online mud when people are posting chicks, like, you don't know what's what. So it's very important to probably, you know, um, do your chicks, are they easy to sex at hatch? Yes, I mean, that's a basic um, premise of this breed. It, the expectation is that it is autosexing. I think it's also important that when you're asking breeders questions about the autosexing of their, um, of their of flock and their offspring, that they're able to knowledgeably explain that to you and what it, it looks like. I often am still surprised by how often I see breeders uh, I guess I would say explain autosexing markings on leg bars that are not always real realistic expectations. Sometimes we'll still see a breeder that will reply that the female should not never have a head spot, which is actually not correct since it's a um, a barring breed. And so, in order for that to work with the markings, you should still. Um, sometimes have a small head spot with a female, but it will be much different than the males. So with all these questions with breeders, I think it also comes to what else you're researching and what you're finding yourself and whether it lines up or whether or not what they're saying sounds like it maybe doesn't line up with what you're reading or hearing from other people. Good. Um, any other thoughts about that piece about the seller's background? So the other thing I would encourage people on the phone call or people that are listening to the podcast is to know a little bit more about our Cream Lay Bar Club website, which actually has this really neat feature that you can actually see members and where they're located on the map and how close they might be to you to buy stock. And it gives you the opportunity to buy stock from people that are invested enough in the breed to pay a $15 membership fee and to be actively involved with the club. Um, Jane, did you want to talk any more about that membership map? Um, I would just uh, maybe inquire if other people have, been contacted um, by other members via the map. I know this last week I had two contacts, which I had to turn down because I'm in a quarantine area, but if anyone else wants to talk about their experience with that. 
Um, I, will I was say contacted that I, through my website um, by a gentleman in uh, England, of all places, looking for gold leg bars. Not gold and creel, but oh. gold leg bars. And that was really weird. But um, I pointed him towards somebody that I heard might have had gold leg bars like a number of years ago. But the poor guy was uh, pretty desperate. <laughs> so that was yeah. weird. That's interesting. Uh, this, yeah. This is Sherilyn. I have some inquiries from, you know, they said that they've seen uh, me listed there um, in the club directory and, you know, have inquired and we established some conversations. Um, a lot of what I do, though, is, you know, of course, Facebook. I have a website. There's lots of pictures out there so that 